also my partner who games has <laughs> told me that in order to understand gaming that i need to do some gaming myself so he has set me up on his nintendo switch um with a zelda game that i'm gonna aim to play a little bit of um each day and see how i get on at the moment i'm finding it very frustrating because i just cannot get the hang of the controls but i'm sure we'll get there And welcome back to another episode of Reflecting Value, the podcast where we explore the big questions relating to cultural value in a reflective space. In case you hadn't figured it out already, in this episode I'm stepping into the world of gaming to reflect on how different groups perceive the value of gaming and how it fits into the broader cultural landscape. I set out to talk to experts in this field, as well as members of the public, to understand more about their relationship with gaming and the barriers and challenges to these cultural experiences. So where better to start our journey than a gaming bar? We headed to Pixel Bar in Leeds to talk to some gamers about the games they play and why they play them. What I like about video games is it's about the immersion. It's going into a world that you could never, you know, see in any other context. Um, I don't know. It's just a nice break, isn't it? We spend a lot of time working and stressed out on what we're doing, and it's a good chance to get away from it all and do what you want to do. I suppose it's also a way, a place where you can actually learn other skills as well, like learning different skills in the game and how to play the game. As um, actually, for, for me these days. It's a lot more about socialising, so I play a lot of Call of Duty Warzone these days, and half the time it's just chatting to my mates that I don't see in person that often these days, so yeah, that's it. Clearly people are passionate about video games, but why does it feel like this popular medium needs to justify its place within the broader cultural landscape? Gaming appears to have this stigma attached to it, where it's seen as a solitary activity purely for entertainment purposes. Okay, I've hit record and it's making little waves, so good. That's Marie Falston. Marie is a video games curator who's helped to bring the culture of video gaming more mainstream, most notably when she worked for the V&A Museum. I sat down with Marie to find out more about her role as a curator and where she sees gaming's place within the cultural landscape. So what is a video games curator? Um, what that essentially means is that um, a lot of the practice and work that I do is about looking for ways to exhibit video games in public spaces. Um, historically and predominantly, that work was really about how you take sort of games uh, into public physical real world spaces. Everything that's happened um, sort of over the past few years um, since 2020, sort of a lot of that has been also then thinking about sort of the ways in which we can exhibit video games and by extension sort of playful media and digital design sort of culture in um, digital spaces as well and sort of remotely. So... Where would you say video games sit within this kind of broader cultural landscape compared to more traditional forms of culture? I think it's a question that's really contextual on who you're asking. And I think it's 
it's something that I guess the, the people who, if we're thinking about culture from that sort of capital C perspective, we're thinking about it through that lens, then there is obviously a lot of authority that is still held within sort of the hands of an older generation um, that perhaps didn't grow up playing games, who um, aren't necessarily, don't feel as confident with that medium, or it's not just, as, it's not as big a part of their lives as it is sort of um, perhaps younger generations. And I think where we are now is that we are at that tipping point where there is that shift and change where I think people do sort of understand that video games are just a part of culture. But um, but I think within that, there's something that I feel sort of quite frustrated about still is that I think a lot of big institutions and I think a lot of sort of, um, sort of big cultural organisations is that when they talk about video games, they often look towards the medium as um, through through that lens of industry, through that lens of seeing how much money do games make each year, how many people play games. Well, we uh, we currently, as an arts organisation, only reach this demographic, but um, video games reaches this younger demographic. How do we get to the younger demographic using video games? So it almost feels as though they see games as this sort of, um, they see games with this, I think sometimes this very commercial lens and this very industrialised lens. And I really wish that people would allow themselves to park the, the sort of thinking of games through that lens, thinking of it through the numbers, thinking of it through sort of um, almost as this sort of like, oh goodness, if we need to reach this many people, if we're feeling a little bit as though we're not reaching those generations, then how can we, what can we learn from video games to access that? Rather than understanding that it's a medium that should just be embraced and supported. I think a lot of people will still sometimes feel that video games is other and that it's outside of culture rather than, and I think that attitude just fails to acknowledge that um, it's already here and it's not, huge parts of it are not waiting for acceptance. They're not waiting to be welcomed into cultural organisations. They're just carrying on regardless and they will exist and they will persist and they will outpace things. It's just... It is there and it doesn't necessarily need the same sort of validation or the same sort of um, cultural markers that we might have had previously, because I think our sense of what cultural markers are are going to shift and change. So I'd be really interested in your thoughts on how we actually kind of capture the social value of gaming. I feel that it's a hard question to answer because there's something that is so um, defensive it's video games is just a point of its history where it still has like the finger sort of wagged at it generally that it's like boo bad like antisocial um lots of bad things in here it's all about shooting killing people and there's gambling and addiction and even within games and and i guess the media tries to push back against that it feels like we go too far we go right to the nth degree and it's not as if we look at music or we look at film and we say, well, music, uh, there's a lot of money here. There's a lot of album sales, but kids sitting in their bedrooms listening to music. Can you tell us, like, have you cured cancer? Have you, um, how good is music for, for mental health? And it's like, I'm sure that there are sort of benefits out there for other disciplines, but they don't have to answer for themselves in quite the same way that I think video games are often pushed to answer for themselves. And it's like, I would love to not necessarily keep focusing on these extremes and just understand and value everything that is sort of entangled and messy and fascinating that's happening in the middle. It reminds me when I worked at the V&A and, oh, and there'll be so many people in different departments that I would go and speak to and sort of present the exhibition to um, that we were working on at the time on video games. And 
so many people would sort of apologize at the beginning of the meeting and say, oh, sir, I just have to stop you now and just let you know, I don't play video games. I'm not a gamer. I don't know games. And I'm really curious as to how many other exhibition meetings those people go into because they must work on exhibitions to do with um, like sculptures, to do with sort of like ancient Greece or to deal with like um, medieval tapestries. And it's like, do you go into each of those meetings and apologize that you don't know about this subject and that you're not an expert? I mean, maybe maybe they do. But I kind of get, I kind of assumed that actually it almost feels like this apology of saying like, oh, I know this is other, I know this exists elsewhere, I know this belongs to somebody else. Um, but then as soon as you start having conversations with people, you realize that they're like, well, my kid watches a lot of Minecraft videos on YouTube, so I know all of these people. And it's like, oh, if you know this and you experience this, then that is a way in which video games are a part of your life. You don't have to sit down and play um, Dark Souls every evening. Giving people the empowerment to be like, hey, look, you play Tetris on your phone on the bus like every day. That counts. That counts. Like you're, you experience this, and this is a part of your life, and that's that's good. So I, I I want to see the word become more messy. I want to see it sort of get bigger, and in a way allow more work to be sort of covered by that, but also allow more people to feel connected and see potential and interest in the discipline. Marie introduces the idea that gaming is for everyone. And it's likely that gaming is part of a lot of people's lives, even if they don't realise it at first. It's funny the amount of times I've said I'm not a gamer during the recording and production of this episode, but talking to Marie made me realise how gaming has intersected in different ways across my life. Here's a question for you. What was your first gaming memory? If I'm thinking of a video game, my first memory is probably playing Mario after school on the Super Nintendo squabbling with friends with who got the controller next, or even spending hours trying to complete the broomstick lesson in Harry Potter on the PlayStation 1 with my brother. Gaming's always been a part of my life, whether I was aware of it or not. In my gaming experiences, I've probably taken for granted the ease in which I'm able to engage with these different games. Even if it takes me a while to get my head around the controls or the rules, there are no significant barriers to me enjoying them. But there are some real issues within gaming, which mean that not everyone can play or be included. When people see it, they, they often say, oh, that's an awful lot of board games you have. Uh, but why I always correct people saying, no, that's a lot of research material uh, that I have. That's Dr. Michael Heron, Senior Lecturer in Interaction Design at the University of Gothenburg, who helped me unpick what accessibility in gaming looks like and how it could be improved. Um, so from an accessibility perspective, what are people missing out on if games are inaccessible to them? Um, and how does this link to their broader cultural capital? You sort of hit at the heart here of why this is an important conversation, because often you get this idea of, well, aren't, aren't there accessible games out there? There's people who make games for the blind. There's like a whole, a massive, uh, a massively interesting area called uh, audio games, which are games that are purely based on sound. And you have games like, for example, you have accessible versions of chess, you have accessible Scrabble, all these things exist. But the point I've made uh, again and again is that people don't want to play accessible games. They want to play the games that their friends are playing. And if those games aren't accessible, then people are being essentially excluded from a very significant part of what the modern cultural conversation is. 
if, if you remember not that long ago, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 came out and it was all a lot of people were talking about. They didn't even really necessarily have to be gamers because it was this, this incredibly successful, incredibly visible game. But if you couldn't play it, you also couldn't engage in the conversations your friends were having about it. You can just sort of ask, but you can never contribute. And I've always felt that to be very isolating. Um, the, the conversations that people have about TV and movies and books, we are all pretty much willing to accept are important conversations that make people feel like they're part of a culture. And I think that's uh, massively important for games as well, because people shouldn't feel excluded. What What is gaming, either board gaming or video gaming, doing really well when it comes to accessibility? And how could other forms of cultural activity learn from what's happening in, in the world of gaming? So I'm, I'm going to take a slightly negative tech attack with this answer because the thing I think that is most emulatable in terms of how uh, in terms of how games work for accessibility is the people who play games, disabled gamers, will complain when games aren't accessible and they will complain loudly. And things like, for example, Rock Paper Shotgun or Kotaku or any of the, the video game periodicals they'll often take that up and that'll become a news story. So we've seen in the past five or so years, video games becoming increasingly accessible, largely because of what is essentially a kind of pester power. That it's not necessarily that people feel the need to make a game accessible, but they know the risks of not making it accessible. You often find this when, uh, when you're working with people with disabilities about accessibility. It's a case of, well, why should this change in order for me to be able to, to interact with this? I used to develop a, a text game and I, I went through an accessibility phase where I was sort of saying, well, give me all your problems and I'll, I'll try and fix them. And in conversations I had with people, it was, oh, I understand the game can't be 100% accessible to me. And my, that kind of surprised me because I thought, well, I've made the game. Why? I've, if there's an inaccessibility in there, I've put it there. So why wouldn't you expect that that could be that could be fixed? But so this sort of this idea that well we have to work around accessibility problems is something games in general are the, the audience for games in general are a bit better at pushing about, and I think that's that's fantastic because the only way this will change is if people start complaining about it. You know, if people don't complain, why bother changing it? Yeah, thank you, and. I guess off the back of that, I'm really interested to know how you kind of teach about accessibility. What, um, how do you go about, yeah, sh showcasing how inaccessible games games can be and what to what to do about that? It, it's such a, it's such an interesting topic because it depends on how you frame it. And what I've often found is the best way to frame it to people is as a problem for them in the future, because we're all getting older. And as we get older, we develop more and more accessibility issues of our own. Uh, we are all only one bad car crash away from needing all of the accessibility support. And also, if a game is accessible, it's usually easier for everybody to play. I like to bring in the, the example of what's called the curb cut effect. Uh, activists in Berkeley in the 60s uh, would point out that the sidewalks were virtually impossible for people with wheelchairs because they were, you know, they were very deep. And they asked if it would be possible to lower those sidewalks so that wheelchairs could get into the road and then safely get to the other side. 
And the council sort of, uh, yeah, but it's the cost and well, okay, okay. And they, they did a little trial scheme. To, essentially, I assume, to prove that it was infeasible. And it was great. People with wheelchairs were then able to go into the road and cross the road safely and get to the other side. But what they also found was it was great for cyclists. It was great for postal carriers who had, you know, little carts full of packages. It was great for parents with strollers or older people. You know, so it turned out that this accessibility fix actually made things massively better for everybody. And I think that's what we see with accessibility design in games. You know, the, these are sort of digital curb cuts, or in case of board games, cardboard curb cuts. They make the games easier for everybody. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think it's it was probably very widely applicable to the way in which people should be thinking about accessibility in, in other areas of, of cultural participation. Um, so yeah, I guess, a sort of hypothetical question. Um, if you had a crystal ball, what would you like to see in the future when it comes to um, gaming and accessibility? I mean, what I would most love to see was just some evidence that people were actually moving towards considering accessibility. You know, for every step forward uh, that I see in the field, there's like four or five steps back. And it, it blows my mind that even now, uh, we still see games that are released that are completely colorblind and accessible because it's, it's zero cost to fix. You know, you don't even need to change your color scheme, just texture the colors or put an icon on things. So it, it costs nothing in terms of material, it costs nothing really in terms of design, and yet it makes the game playable uh, for a group of people who otherwise might not find it working that way. So when you see 2021, you know, a new hot game and nobody has paid any attention to the colors, it's, it's really discouraging. So what I would really like to see was some evidence that we are slowly, because <laughs> moving rapidly is a little bit much to hope for, that we're moving slowly towards uh, a landscape where accessibility is considered before the game is released. It shouldn't be the case you have to wait for a second edition or a conversion kit uh, to be able to play a hot new game. But that's, that's often what it is at the moment. Michael talked about the power of accessibility in improving game design for everyone. However, moving away from the design of games, what about the gaming community itself? How do gamers create their own communities online? And how accessible and safe are these spaces? One place gamers go to seek out these spaces is Twitch. Twitch is an online streaming platform that's primarily used for gaming, and it's massive. In 2020, 26.5 million visitors came to Twitch daily to watch the 8.5 million unique creators streaming through the platform. Twitch enables creators to develop their own gaming communities and cultural spaces that bring people together. But there has been some backlash about the lack of action taken in challenging racism, transphobia and misogyny on the platform. I do have negative comments is that I always think of the masses. I think it's not, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this for many other women who I can open a door for because I've clapped back at that person because I've showcased that. This is Stephanie Ijoma, founder of Naysaga. Naysaga is a platform that aims to build diverse and inclusive gaming communities, both online and offline, so they can connect through gaming in a safe space. I asked Stephanie what work she does through Naysaga to achieve this. So 
So for what I do in a day-to-day with Naysaga, I'm mainly a games consultant. So I work very, very closely with game studios, gaming and non-gaming brands to make sure that their product launches, gaming campaigns or whatever they would like to you know, present and do is very diverse and inclusive. So I try to make sure that I, you know, give people opportunities, give talent opportunities, um, give them paid opportunities as well, you know, because I didn't get the opportunity like that until, you know, later on down the line of my career. Trying to get into the games industry wasn't easy as a black woman because, you know, the higher ups, the execs, they always, you know, want to make sure they just hire somebody that looks like them, which is normally the whites to smell. So if you look at the games industry and if you look at who's at the top, probably less than 2% are black or minorities or, you know, marginalised people within the space. Naysaga for me reflects into what the actual, you know, gaming community, gaming audience is because, you know, my audience is super diverse. Um, I'm very lucky to be in a position where my audience, my community, those who follow and support Naysaga are, you know, full of different types of people from different walks of life. And that's what it should be. But unfortunately, the games industry only market one type of audience and demographic. I wear a number of hats, but um, essentially my thing is changing the culture shifting change within the games industry and banging on the doors and trying to make sure that as soon as I open those doors that other people who look like me you know also come in you know a lot of companies and brands are very stuck in their ways so you know they don't want to hire consultants or the experts so it's you know when when we come in there it's all about making change we've talked to quite a few people um about kind of gaming and gaming experiences and we're particularly interested in kind of um in twitch um because it's kind of, yeah, this content creation and also this kind of live engagement with gaming um, at the same time. Um, how do you kind of navigate safe spaces kind of in the moment within that kind of context in the work that you do? Well, truth be told, unfortunately, I had to, you know, create the safe space because growing up as a woman, as a black woman, there's a lot of not only sexism, but racism and it's annoying that the corporate companies don't want to also provide those safe spaces. So even, you know, going online, playing Call of Duty or playing, you know, a game growing up and not being able to actually talk to people online who are just playing the same game as you, because as soon as they hear a woman's voice, immediately you're attacked or, you know, you're bashed. And these are the things that, you know, we're crying for change. And when you feel like, a company or brand that you've loved so much isn't actually doing anything to you know facilitate a safe space you have to do it yourself so I tried to make sure there's protocols in place making sure that I have mods who work for me who um, help me create a safe space for people who actually come into my streams so putting proper measures into place because again it can be very hard just turning on live going on twitch and you know not feeling like, you know, you may be attacked just because of the colour of your skin or because of what you look like. So I think it's very important to put measures into place to also create that environment where not just people who are regular viewers, but also newer viewers. Unfortunately, the top 5% of uh, the Twitch streamers are white cis male and they don't get affected because of, again, the problem of gaming is how gaming is marketed. If you market gaming as gaming is perceived where it's only white men that play it, that type of that type of community itself 
is already solidified. So the audience that they're, you know, gravitating towards, they're not going to be used to seeing others like yourself or like me. So that kind of creates a toxic environment. And then on top of that, that toxic environment then kind of seeds out to other people and to other platforms who are just, who just want to stream. I have to deal with trolls like pretty much every week because I'm not that type of brand to just be a yes woman or something. Like I will speak up, I will be vocal about it and visible. And if that means certain brands don't want to work with me, then so be it. They're not for me. And if you're not actually trying to, you know, support us, you know, whether it's financially or just having a safe um, hub for yourself, we're going to have to speak out. So I guess this question kind of leads on from that. Um, What does the future of gaming look like? For you, um, if things don't change versus if things take on board the kind of uh, messages that you're that you're promoting through um, Naysaga. So you saw with everything that happened with Black Lives Matter last year, what has happened this year? Nothing. A lot of performative companies have gone silent. They don't want to hire like people like ourselves who are consultants to actually help them continue a long term plan. There is a potential future for you know gamers and for you know the gaming community and you know the business and marketing side of it but it can only happen if people are willing to make that change and with what I do and what I'm trying to do I can only do so much you know because again I am a minority and I'm very grateful with the platform that I built and you know the brands I've worked with and the brands I still continue to work with which I'm very very grateful about because those brands I actually you know work with I have an ongoing relationship with them we're always talking about okay what more can we do to you know help others to give and provide opportunities to people because we need to still change the narrative and change the face of what gaming is supposed to be a diverse you know industry but if we're still marketing the same one-sided face nothing's going to change and then on top of that is hiring you know hiring the right people hiring diverse voices because I started Naysaga because I couldn't even get into the industry myself because of what I looked like so those who are actually in the industry who look like me they can only reach a certain height you know they can only reach the ceiling because the execs only want to have and hire people that look like them because that's what they want to do they want to be stuck in their ways so If there's a way where we can get more minorities and marginalised people into higher positions, they can be in the rooms talking for us. That can also enable and even make my work a lot more easier because I'm able to now funnel in the opportunities or funnel in the change. I will say people are now starting to get opportunities, but it's only if we say something. And if we don't say anything, the formula will still be the same. The system will still be the same. There's a lot of systemic racism in gaming and it's very, very hard to break that mould. What is clear from talking to each of this episode's guests is how centrally they position gaming within the broader cultural landscape, and particularly the social value gained from taking part in shared gaming experiences. While there seems to be a way to go when it comes to designing accessible gaming and supporting the development of safe and inclusive spaces online, we must acknowledge that many of these issues also permeate into wider forms of cultural participation. It's evident that change is needed, and we can't expect the people who are impacted by inaccessibility and exclusion to be the only people to demand this change. Those who hold the power in this area need to be held accountable, 
to ensure that gaming is an enjoyable and valuable experience for everyone, not just those who they believe gain the most value from gaming experiences. But what do you think? Get involved with the discussion by searching hashtag ReflectingValue on Twitter. That's all from me. Thank you for listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. See you next time.